Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'd like to thank the President, <coughs> Father Petrie, and, and uh, the Director, Father Legg, for their generous words and uh, also say how great it is to be back here and to see so many friends uh, among you. The bad news is that this talk is closer to an hour than it is 45 minutes, and that I'm going to read it, f- but and, and also that it's a, it's a relatively opaque and obscure talk, uh, but I'm going to read it fast so you suffer less. Um, the good news is that this talk has clear uh, theses that emerge gradually, so that if you uh, either fade out and come back in at the end, or pay attention all the way through, you will find that I do elicit, uh, eventually, you know, eventually present an argument. Um, in a major work from the year 2012, Jan Ertzen, the Dutch Protestant expert in medieval studies, characterized the philosophical thought of the high Middle Ages as transcendental thought. Ertzen notes that the terms transcendentalis and transcends in 14th century medieval parlance can be taken to mean typically one of two things. First, and most commonly, these terms signify those aspects of being that transcend any particular genus or species of being, features of existence that enter into all that is insofar as it exists, and the classical list includes being, unity, truth, and goodness. Second, transcendental denotes that which is most ultimate and noble, that which transcends all finite and dependent realities, namely the unknown mystery we call God, the creator. These two senses of transcendental are related. The study of the transcendental characteristics common to all being alert us to their created character as they all share or participate in common perfections of being in a finite way. Each of them is a derivative and limited instantiation of existence, having a given unity, truth, and goodness. Nothing we experience is the cause of its own existence, but rather all things we know immediately participate in being and derive their existence from others. They are thus indicative of a more common background field or horizon of beings, a global composite in which each being plays a limited role and is only ever a limited instantiation of that to which all uh, of, of that to which we can predicate existence unity truth and goodness but a multiplicity of derived realities points us towards a hidden ground and cause of all that participates in existence from which all things receive their being they thus point us towards an unknown but transcendent and hidden exemplar of being the mystery of god who is unlike all things that come forth from God. Now, as, well, as is well known, there's a very different modern use of the term transcendental that emerges in philosophy in the 18th century work of Immanuel Kant, exemplified in his foundational book, The Critique of Pure Reason. 
Kant is concerned to effectuate what he vividly denotes as a Copernican revolution in metaphysical research. What previous generations took to be features of the external world of beings, he takes to be features of our interior subject, the agent of knowledge who is actively construing a view of the world. As previous generations came to understand the sun as the center of the solar system rather than the earth, so should, we should rotate and understand the human being as the source of those metaphysical structures we designate to understand about reality. So they're coming from us rather than from the realities themselves. The subject, the transcendental subject, is the ground or foundation of the categorical forms of understanding of the world we actively perceive. As these categories emanate from us, from our understanding, as the condition of, of any possible interpretation of the world provided in causal terms. Famously, the notion of God on this view comes not from our study of the world, but is that of a heuristic explanatory fiction, albeit an inevitable and even natural one, an ideal notion of an ultima, ultimate unifying cause behind all causes by which we aim through all our intellectual investigations at a systematic and coherent explanation of all things. You might say God is a very useful idea for instigating in us the ambition to construe the world as if it made sense. Kant does reserve a place for the affirmation of the true existence of God as a postulate of practical reason, a necessary practical certitude that follows from the idea that the pursuit of justice in this life is to be rewarded and its neglect is to be punished. So often we do not see just outcomes of our practical activity in this life, and so it's only if God exists and if the soul of the moral agent subsists after death that the practical order of morality inscribed in our nature is fully intelligible. So in his own way, Kant's trans uh, in its own way for Kant, the transcendental subject to accord itself with itself in both speculative and practical reason as they cohere in their two respective ends of explanation construction and practical justice does approach in his own way and on his own terms the second medieval sense of the term transcendental, that's to say the transcendent mystery of God. It is unsurprising that in the 20th century, Catholic theologians fell into deep division regarding the prognosis of the viability of medieval notions of metaphysics as transcendental philosophy, especially in regard to the critique of Kant and his reorganized notion of philosophy in the service of the modern anthropology and ethics of the transcendental subject. Immanuel Kant was effectively the father of liberal, liberal modernity, and there was the living question in the 19th and 20th centuries for Catholic theology, indeed also for Protestant, of whether the medieval project of a public culture of the knowledge of God could be reconciled with the modern philosophical culture of constitutionalized, secular, constitutionally secularized cosmopolitan liberalism. It would be reasonable to contrast in this respect the divergent approaches taken to the knowledge of God that appear in one of the most famous Dominican and one of the most famous Jesuit theologians of the last century, Reginald Garrigou-Lagrange and Karl Rahner. Garrigou-Lagrange was assigned in 1909 to teach at the Angelicum in Rome and took up a chair in ascetical and mystical theology in 1917. Around this time frame, he published his works on Thomistic Common Sense, uh, subtitled The Philosophy of Being and the Development of Doctrine from 1906, 
1914, God, His Existence in Nature, a Thomistic Solution to Certain Agnostic Antimonies, and His Massive On Divine Revelation, the Teaching of the Catholic Faith from 1918. These works are characterized by a common set of concerns, not unrelated to the Thomistic revival inaugurated in the 19th century by Leo XIII and advanced in a distinct way then by Pope Pius X when a, a revival and a kind of movement which sought to emphasize Thomistic philosophical principles as the centerpiece of modern Catholic thought in the face of the Enlightenment contestations. Gary Lagrange averts to basic features of universal human thought and its laws of inward development as it turns outward to study the very nature and existence of the realities we encounter in ordinary experience. The intellect, you might say, in its internal life flowers through the study of reality and enunciates to itself the principles of non-contradiction, of identity, of substance, of causality, of finality, and of sufficient reason. These principles in the epistemic order correspond to truths about the nature of reality itself, such as the fact that two beings are not identical with one another, they each have an intrinsic uh, and essential content, there are causal explanations for why they exist, they pursue ends, there are sufficient reasons for their existence, and so forth. This, from this emerges an awareness of ontological interdependencies in the realities we know about us, that is to say, causes that indicate metaphysical, metaphysical compositions of actuality and potentiality, in, and these in turn alert us to chains of causal interdependency in which all agents composed of act and potency require reference to a yet higher cause or origin of existence in that which is pure actuality and that we call God, the creator and giver of being, to all that is merely composite in being, that is derived, that receives its being from another. Gary Lagrange adjoins to this universally applicable rational framework of human knowledge a corresponding apologetic defense of the universally acknowledgeable, rationally warranted belief in Christian revelation, which is based on genuine perceptible signs of credibility, such as miracles, the testimony of the apostles to the historicity of the resurrection, the credibility of the moral witness of the saints, the conformity in uh, the, the, con the uh, consistency of Catholic teaching over time, and so forth. This understanding of public religious rationality in the service of the Catholic religion is maintained as the basis for a corresponding public policy of the constitutional protection of both the religious liberties and social privileges of the Catholic Church in the context of the modern political state. To switch then to the Jesuit colleague who comes generation, a generation later, Karl Rahner developed a different account of the nature of Catholic reasoning about God in twin works from his early career, Spirit in the World on the Metaphysics of Finite Knowledge in Thomas Aquinas from 1939 and Hearers of the Word on the Foundation of a Philosophy of Religion from 1941. The two works are best understood as paired together. In the first of these works, Rahner characterizes the knowing subject in a way somewhat like, but not quite identical, with the Kantian critical subject of constructive reasoning. For Rahner, the human being cannot but construe the world in metaphysical terms by positioning within time and space each categorical individual that we experience as a finite being, positively affirmed to be through judgment. 
but also negatively construed as limited in being against the backdrop of an ever greater horizon of other entities always also being experienced. This inevitable dynamic of openness to the ever greater horizon of being that is present in every act of knowing, however banal, is taken to be the telltale sign of an a priori tendency of the human mind toward infinite being, a tendency that conditions all that the human being is and all that he or she aspires to in all instances of anthropological truth-seeking. In a life in which the boundaries of finitude and death that condition human existence inevitably are countered by an internal and insuperable drive towards union with the infinite. The drama for the human being, according to Rahner, is that as a corporeal insensate animal, the human being cannot encounter the infinite in finite form amidst the physical forms of this world unless the infinite should communicate itself in a historical and finite way in sensate form. The human being is thus a dynamic historical process of striving for the infinite in what are intrinsically limited and limiting conditions. This human being thus stands in readiness or intrinsic openness, obediential potency, to a revelation spoken in history accompanied by grace. God's self-communication to human beings by grace in the economy of revelation takes on its epitomal expression then in the incarnation in which the infinite mystery we, mystery we call God, who remains otherwise unknown to human reason, is expressed in a finite form of life in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, in his life, passion, and resurrection. We should note that Rahner's transcendental philosophy provides less vigor to public reason and characterizes the modern philosophical individual in slightly more qualifiedly agnostic terms. You might say Rahner creatively makes agnosticism his own Catholic problem as an existential problem. While human beings cannot escape an intellectually dynamic interest in God by way of their inner drive for truth and explanation, they also cannot resolve fully the question of God philosophically either, except as a necessary presupposition of their existential need to know and discover, as if God is a postulate of speculative reason you have to posit in order to explain fully the drive to think and explain. It's only in revelation of the incarnation that the human natural drive for religious understanding of reality can be genuinely resolved. On this model, Christians would seem to be Christians would seem to be co-denizens of the modern secularized state who have the unique advantage not of preferable philosophical traditions inherited from the Middle Ages, Middle Ages and of warranted rational belief in revelation. Instead, they are privileged to know of the unique existential resolution of the human conundrum in virtue of divine revelation and of God's self-communication in Jesus Christ and in the sacramental and educational life of the church. Both of these modern visions of the human encounter with God and the reasonableness of human philosophical openness to Christian revelation have great strengths. And I take that each of, their, each of them, in their own way, express uh, uh, something about the relation of modern human beings to the mystery of God that is true. However, I'd like to take a step back from both of them and return to the question of the medieval approach to transcendental philosophy to examine in particular some reflections of Thomas Aquinas, which I take it may set the discussion on slightly distinct footing. 
So to move back to the Middle Ages is to move back before the great divide that happened in modern philosophy between those who privileged the study of the external world of empirical norms, by which I mean to indicate people like Locke and Hume, and those who privileged the internal world of rational laws, by whom I mean people like Descartes and Kant. The common doctors of the medieval period sought to resolve the external metaphysical ways towards ultimate explanation, but also pay attention to the interior epistemic ways of the studies of human knowledge and desire, and they did so in a different mode from what we find in most influential modern philosophers. Now, I mean by the external pathway, the route followed from reasoning metaphysically from the nature and existence of realities we perceive externally to the necessary, the ne uh, necessary postulation of some first transcendent origin, exemplar, and final end of all things that we call God. And I mean by the internal pathway, the route followed from reasoning anthropologically or epistemologically from those interior conditions of human thinking, desiring, and willing to the transcendent condition of possibility for these interior activities. Philosophers of the high middle period differed notably from one another in how they undertook each of these two approaches or ways and how they correlated the two, but they were typically all in agreement with a more general point as they sought to keep them together as both being distinct but related pathways to the transcendent. We might even say with deliberate anachronism that for the great medieval doctors, the interior transcendental subject develops its own innate natural inclinations towards God just to the extent that it undertakes a metaphysical ascent to God by way of the exterior study of the transcendental features of reality. By studying metaphysics, we become more our interior selves. Bonaventure is instructive in this regard as a point of comparison and contrast with Aquinas, who I will come to. On the one hand, Bonaventure affirms that God in his infinite being, perfection, and goodness is the first thing known by the human intellect, as if the numinous, imperfect gaze of the mind upon the very nature of God through the medium of a conception of the divine perfection is the epistemic condition of possibility for every other thought about created being. God is the first known, and all else is known in the light of God, even if we're not actually aware of this. And that's a complication that's very interesting in Bonaventure's thought. It's not surprising, then, that following Anselm, Bonaventure will also entertain the so-called ontological argument, the argument from the very idea of God as perfect being, the idea of God as perfect being, to the conclusion that such a being must exist not merely in idea but in reality, given that the idea of perfection necessarily includes the idea of real existence. So if God can be conceived of as perfect, then he must be, because what is perfect is. If we can conceive of that which is most perfect, this can only be because God truly exists in his infinite and mysterious perfection that transcends our comprehension, but that is the ground of possibility for every other thought we have either of God or of his finite creatures that have their limited being, perfection, and goodness from him derivatively. At the same time, Bonaventure is also concerned to elaborate the external pathways of argumentation for the existence of God from the realities known in the senses, understood precisely in their transcendental features of existence, unity, goodness, and so forth. 
He thus also makes arguments to the demonstrative positing of the existence of God from the consideration of the real but limited perfection and goodness of forms of beings that we encounter through experience and know intellectually through metaphysical analysis. So the existence, order, and goodness of the external world for him bears the trace of its creator from whence we can derive metaphysical names for God as unoriginated goodness, as transcendent, and as one. It is interesting to note that in Bonaventure's thought, the epistemic circle of rotation moves from inward to outward, from the inward knowledge of God in the soul to outward confirmation of the knowledge of God in external things, and then back inward to the upward ascent into God by mystical life in grace. In a way, this is the opposite to Aquinas, who begins from the outward things to achieve metaphysical knowledge of created realities by studying the observable realities around us, and then from this ascends to knowledge of the transcendent origin and end of the same realities. Let's say he goes from the external realities as existing to God. This knowledge gained through the senses is correlated then by Aquinas to an interior drive toward perfect contemplative and scientific knowledge, as well as the desire for happiness and beatitude, as I will come to. Despite its Platonic Augustinian orientation, or perhaps because of it, Bonaventure's way remains a potent form of Catholic thought that provides characteristics required for any theological philosophical viewpoint that aspires to be of perennial and universal or common importance and to have a referential commonplace in the wider intellectual life of the church. Namely, these four features can be underscored, and here I am actually now finally making a thematic claim about what you have to do if you want to be a common doctor. First, Bonaventure's philosophy provides avenues for the consideration of ways human beings may attain natural knowledge of the one God, the transcendent creator of all things. Second, this occurs through the medium of philosophical reflection so that all that exists and has other transcendental properties such as unity, truth, and goodness may be understood in light of the mystery of God, and so too it follows that all the disciplines of learning that study natural realities can be coordinated to one another and understood in light of the mystery of God and the science of theology, which is itself in turn informed by a metaphysical reflection, uh, register of reflection. In other words, the second criteria that Bonaventure meets is that he can give a way to articulate the unity of all sciences and subject them reasonably to a natural knowledge of God, and that in turn to a thematic consideration of the revelation of the Trinity. Third, Bonaventure's notion of a predication of names to God will allow him to, de to develop within Christian theology as such a theory of the inner life of the Trinity through a consideration of the eternal processions of the Word and the Spirit, so that he may in turn consider all of reality in a Trinitarian light as an expression of Trinitarian creativity or emanation from the Trinity. And fourth, Bonaventure can provide reasons of fittingness for the incarnation of the Word as a recreative initiative of God the Holy Trinity entering into our human life so as to draw the minds of all human beings back up towards their unacknowledged source, rotating the gaze of the mind back upward towards the most primal and unoriginate of realities, the Father who uh, uh, eternally begets the Son and spirates the Spirit from whom all things emanate forth in being, including the human being, made in the image of the Trinity, reflected in the threefold faculties of personal memory, intellect, and volitional love. 
Now, Thomas Aquinas, of course, provides us with a different vision, and it bears thinking out why he might be considered a common doctor, doctor of the doctrine of God, not only in the epics succeeding the 13th century, but even in our contemporary context. Toward this end, let us consider briefly in turn first his external pathway to God, then his internal way, and the corresponding notions of a revelatory epiphany of deeper truths that remain rationally unknown, but are communicated to us fittingly by means of the incarnation of the word and in the distinctively Trinitarian revelation of the inner life of God and of the human being as imago Dei. And this will allow us to return to the question of modern Catholic theological aspirations and of Aquinas as common doctor in the modern era. Now, Aquinas offers more than five arguments for the existence of God, including various arguments from the consideration of the real distinction of essence and existence in creatures, considerations of time and eternity, potency and act, order and divine providence, the hierarchy of perfections found in reality that requires something transcendent, and appeals to the first mover of the immaterial operations of the human soul. Such arguments from reason for the existence of God are strewn throughout the work of Aquinas, and it's difficult in reality to enumerate how many arguments for the existence of God are to be found in his work. I would even go as far as to say that um, definitive scholarly analysis of this topic is still lacking. However, one can ask what common presuppositions inform his reflections that pass in varied ways by what I'm calling the external pathway from the philosophical consideration of created, derivative, ontologically dependent, and composite realities to their unseen cause that is unoriginated, non-derived, ontologically necessary, and simple, who remains mysterious, imperfectly unknown, and naturally inaccessible to us in his essence, at least when it comes to any immediate experience of his nature. There have been many attempts to characterize what common metaphysical presuppositions underlie all of Thomas Aquinas's theistic arguments. Etienne Gilson famously claimed in the sixth edition of Le Thomisme that the real distinction between essence and existence as Aquinas articulates it in Creatures, stands behind all of the arguments, or at least behind the five ways from Prima Par's Question 2, Article 3 of the Summa Theologiae, which is the famous text. Perhaps more plausibly, plausibly to my mind, Lawrence Dewan has argued that the five ways correlate roughly to five Aristotelian causes, material, efficient, formal, exemplary, and final, each expanded out to the highest and most ultimate horizon of causal explanation leading to God. Garrigou Lagrange, meanwhile, argues that all such argumentation rests upon the consideration of act potency compositions of various kinds found in creatures denoting dependencies in the causal orders, so as to conclude from these to the considered awareness of God as pure actuality and as the primary cause who alone is unqualifiedly necessary in the order of existence. Now, other theories could be mentioned, but my aim here is not to seek to resolve these important and interesting theoretical disputes. Instead, it is helpful to take a step back, I think, and acknowledge a more fundamental or logically generic point about these various arguments of Aquinas that is apropos to our considerations. 
For Aquinas, the complexity of causal composition and dependency as we encounter it in all the realities we engage with daily, when considered philosophically and metaphysically, points us upward towards some more ultimate source of reality. Any study of the transcendental notions of being thus eventually arrives at a consideration of this kind, since the beings we encounter, in which existence is common, uh, are... Um, and to which we apply common notions of the transcendentals, all show congenital signs of derivation from God, and their perfection in the order of being is a likeness to God, from which we can eventually name God from the names we, eventually, we initially give them by analogical predication, speaking of God's existence, being, nature, um, of his unity or, or oneness, of his goodness, and so forth. To speak of being, unity, truth, and goodness in the order of the things of this world is to think of complex and composite being that is in each and every instance in some way ontologically caused or subject to others and interdependent in coexistence with others. But this points us towards something underived that must have features of perfection pertaining to the transcendental structures of reality, the first medieval sense of transcendental employed by Ertzen. In this way, that is utterly, in a way, that these be being exists in God that is utterly transcendent in the second uh, sense of the term medieval term for transcendence indicated by Ertzen. And this second sense pertains to the mystery of God alone in his incomprehensible nobility and hidden perfection. Now the reason I'm averting to this transcendental form of thinking in Aquinas in this twofold form indicated at the start of the paper is that this form of inquiry as he envisages it also most deeply affects the internal life, the internal way, the tendential aspirations of the mind and the heart toward truth and love. It thus touches directly upon the internal way toward God and the likeness between Aquinas and those modern thinkers who seek to delineate a structure of the transcendent subject always already ordered toward God, however implicitly or vaguely, in each act of noetic aspiration to the truth. So permit me to make this point about the interiority of Aquinas' ascent toward God briefly in three stages. First, it's clear that Aquinas begins the study of metaphysics from the study of the principles of being, not the consideration of the epistemic conditions of understanding, which I take it that both Gary Lagrange and Rahner, in two diverse and opposed ways, do, uh, do undertake. So I think he differs from them a little bit. However, he is clear enough about the fact that in the mind's search for understanding of the, con the causal constitution of the field of being, the mind engages with the truth of being as intelligible and with the goodness of being as appetible. So in seeking the truth about being, one is indeed seeking the native good of the human mind. And in seeking to possess the goodness of being, one is seeking the native good of the human heart or will. Second, we encounter here a theory in Aquinas of a twofold motivation for the dynamic pursuit of the truth and goodness of being, leading up even through the medium of creatures into a reflexive desire for God in himself. I mean, why worry about whether the world shows you that God exists and whether he's sovereignly good and why you should be motivated to think about it philosophically even? Aquinas has an answer to that question from within philosophy. The human person, Aquinas argues, is motivated by the search for the causal explanation of things in such a way <clears throat> that when a causal explanation permits us to attain knowledge of a cause through the medium of its effects, but not knowledge of the essence of that cause in itself, 
we do inevitably desire to know the cause in itself to see the essence of the cause. You find a dead body in the room before the lecture because the person was electrocuted, but you don't know which circuit electrocuted them. You do want to know the cause. It's very profound in us. And so similarly, the existence of the world raises the question of wh where it came from, but also who it came from and who he is. Aquinas employs this argumentation in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars Question 12, Article 1, 12, 1 of the first part, to argue philosophically, not simply theologically, in defense of the natural desire to see God, an orientation of natural reason that correlates with but is not purely proportionate to Christian hope in the beatific vision of the Holy Trinity as the final end of human existence. In other words, the natural desire for truth leads us on upwardly, even through the consideration of all creatures externally, towards an in inward understanding of the truth about ourselves as beings that naturally desire to see God and that are structured innately by the tr search for the truth in such a way as we wish to see the undifferentiated first truth and ground of all truth pertaining to reality. The philosopher, qua philosopher, reasonably aspires to see the very essence and nature of God. This just is the sort of reality that we are, even in each and every instance of knowing and of desiring knowledge, so that just as each finite being, in its intelligible truthfulness, is an ontological participation in the transcendent unknown primordial truth of God, the external world has a truth about it that comes from God, so every act of human knowledge is a noetic participation in created intellectual form, in the uncreated life of God as verbum, or intellectual activity in pure actuality, we participate in knowing and resemble the uncreated knower. Likewise, the search for happiness in the human person, Aquinas argues, is objectively driven toward the perfect possession of a good that alone can satisfy the rational aspirations of the human person for noetic perfection and the plenary satisfaction of the desires of the will. And this must be infinite and unbounded in sovereign goodness. I won't rehearse his arguments, but they're convincing to me. This reality is the inaccessible transcendent creator whose sovereign perfect goodness in this life we naturally possess only indirectly in the participated goods of this world that oblately indicate the hidden and uncreated ground of our being who is infinitely and sovereignly good. Just because, then, the human person aspires inevitably to perfect happiness, so too, then, the human person can never cease objectively to seek God inwardly, at least insofar as we seek happiness, even if this fact may completely elude most people. Nor can any finite good truly fulfill or satisfy the human person, so much so that Aquinas goes on to actually argue that, in some sense, we cannot be happy in this life. And that's actually good news, because it shows we could one day be happy in seeing God. Far from assuring the possession of God, then, these, you might say, natural drives of the human person towards perfect contemplative knowledge of the essence of God and towards perfect possession of the good are inherently destabilizing in the absence of grace and revelation, since without the latter, they may readily become disoriented and even seem to be delusional tendencies. What am, the, what, what am I as this creature who desires infinite uh, perfection in the order of being and goodness and who finds no resolution of that desire in any empirical reality I experience. The human person with re without revelation tends not only not to be a true metaphysician, but also, in addition, is easily threatened by metaphysical and ethical nihilism. Precisely because of the kind of inherent nobility the human person possesses as a dynamic 
or a dynamically oriented spiritual person. In the absence of God, we should expect a metaphysical animal to tend towards a variety of species of nihilism across a spectrum from the more political to the more aesthetic variants. Third, then, the habits of contemplation and love of the good must be perfected in human beings by habits of knowledge and love, virtues that provide stability to the philosophical and ethical endeavors of human beings. There's an analogy here between Aquinas's notion of the spiritual life and the modern turn to the transcendental subject in Kant or Rahner, since Aquinas understands the inner subject to develop virtuously in and through the habitual work of metaphysical explanation and spiritual contemplation, as well as in stable, ethical, virtuous activity, which he understands in Augustinian terms as a deep and abiding practice of the love of God and other persons with charity as the form of the virtues so that we are stabilized supernaturally from within to be able to contemplate God in a higher domain supernaturally and a natural domain philosophically and orient our lives ethically in the natural cardinal virtues and in a higher way in the theological virtues through the stabilizing inner presence of charity moving us supernaturally into God. All this being said, it's crucial to underscore that for Aquinas, our external way towards God is subject to genuine and significant limitations, since philosophically speaking, we only know God from his created effects or through their medium. So we can only truly name him and speak of what he is in himself from them, but cannot know the reality that he is in its incomprehensible essence, merely from the consideration of his effects. Nor Likewise, then, can we internally attain by nature a philosophical work to that uh, alone which will make us perfectly happy through contemplative vision of the essence of God and through the plenary and immediate possession of the transcendent, unparticipated goodness of God that is unknown to us and that is the cause of every other created goodness and that remains in large part, and these created goods remain in large part unsatisfying for us in a plenary sense. In this context, we can uh, avert helpfully to Aquinas' doctrine, then, of the fittingness of the incarnation of the Word, and to his notion of the revelation of the Trinitarian character of the Imago Dei in human persons. Aquinas gives many arguments for the wisdom or fittingness of the incarnation in an individual human nature. Why did God become human? These appear, for example, in Summa Theologiae, uh, third part, question one. They appear in the... Th uh, the th um, various uh, uh, disputed questions. Uh, they appear uh, also in the theological compendium. We find in uh, the first question of the third part of the Summa several references to the epistemic advantages for us of finding God if God has taken on human form and lived among us in the flesh. God's incarnation manifests his goodness for the human race. That's principle. We know God is good because he's become human to redeem us. His divine teaching is conveyed in human example, gesture, and word, making it clearer and easier to understand who he is in faith and making it clear who we are called to become by grace. Christ's suffering and resurrection in the human body indicate our firm grounds for hope in God who has given us the supreme means of salvation in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And this makes us more aware that he has loved us divinely and intensively from all eternity, offering us all the grace and mercy of redemption. The presence of God in our human nature permits friendship with God in a stable human way, which is remarkable. And the Eucharist is a prolongation of this presence down through time for the church to enjoy and be sustained by. We can live in friendship with God because God is present among us in his human nature, mystically and truly, concretely, ontologically in the Eucharist. In fact, the human animal is best sustained in its spiritual and religious life by sacraments, and so the Word made flesh fittingly accorded us seven sacramental modes of encountering God supernaturally so that we might be elevated into living knowledge of the Trinity and living friendship with the Trinity, knowing God now in himself. Most of all, the Son and Word of God has come into the world to reveal the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to remake humanity anew by grace and by nature, in the light of the eternal word, through whom all things were originally given being. Thus, the Trinitarian imprint in all things, and specifically in the human being as a spiritual creature made in the image of God, is made clear to human beings who are illumined by Christ in a way that was formerly inaccessible to human understanding. What what Aquinas takes away from us, you might say, or delimits in us by philosophy, he makes uh, available to us by theology and thus shows us the inward promise of the revelation of the Trinity made present in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Lord. This last point is of some importance. Uh, this point about him revealing ourselves to our, revealing us to ourselves in light of the Trinity. The human being is made in the image, not only of the divine nature, but of the Trinity per se. Now, if we were to stop only where Rahner did, with the encounter of the divine offer of self-communication in the incarnation in history, to us who are sensate-limited uh, beings bound to the, you might say, co- restrictive horizon of cognition within the sense field as Kant tells us we are, uh, we w- it would remain unclear if that revelation could really lead us back up into God so that by revelation we could know the transcendent uh, origin of our being uh, in himself, God to whom we could now have real access, not only through the medium of metaphysical reflection, but now through divine revelation of the inner life of God that we can contemplate in the faith and understand to some extent truly uh, through the use of theological reflection. Aquinas argues that the word made flesh bears within himself, we might say, the real presence of the uncreated eternal processions of Trinitarian life. The Son made man is not only sent by the Father into the world, but he proceeds eternally from the Father, even as he is in the world in human form. And the Spirit sent by the Father through the Son is the Spirit of the Father and the Son, who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. So in short, uh, on Aquinas' account, we can come to know from the sending of the Word made flesh who God is in himself, in his eternal processional life, even if we know him obliquely in faith and through the medium of revelation in the word of God. Furthermore, we can come to learn that human beings are truly in the image of the eternal processional life of the Trinity, precisely in this inner spiritual life that we noted early, earlier characterizes our inward dynamic development, our movement back to the origin of being through the search for the truth and the search for the love of goodness. The substantial, according to Aquinas, the substantial autonomy of the human person as an agent who is a seeker of knowledge and love is an image of the eternal father who communicates spiritual being and autonomous life 
to the human person created in his image. Just as the Father eternally generates the word and spirits the spirit of love, so we as autonomous rational agents eternally are truth seekers and love seekers, are goodness seekers. The intellectual life of truth seeking and contemplation in us is then an image of the word and son, the verbum who derives from the Father all that the Father is, as sub oh, sorry, who derives from the Father all that he as son is, as the Father's subsistent wisdom through whom all things are made. While the, vol the volitional life of love of union and of happiness in us, pursuing the good, seeking happiness, this is an image of the Holy Spirit, the uncreated spiration of love who is common to the Father and the Son, the uncreated eternal gift of mutual love shared between them from all eternity. We come from the Trinity, but we are also each little personal trinities, little processional entities who can commune with each other, but more importantly even, can commune with the God who has made us in his image to return to the Trinity. These observations are pertinent even in modernity because they suggest that for Aquinas, due to the revelation of the Trinity provided in the Incarnation, we can understand the ultimate cause of the world in Trinitarian terms and can also understand our own deepest motivations and our own best and highest selves in this same light, in the light of the Trinity. Now, I noted above that there are at least four fundamental requirements for any theology that would aspire to be of universal service or common teaching in the church in regard to the doctrine of God. First, a metaphysical register capable of thinking of God philosophically. Second, a capacity to think universally of all things in light of God and to unite all disciplines of learning and relate them to theology as the ultimate science of explanation. I mean, by, by theology, you know, sacra doctrina, the study of revealed truth about the Trinity. Third, a capacity to conceive of the inner life of processions in God, the Trinity, the eternal processional life of the Trinity, so as to contemplate God in himself effectively in the faith, including by the use of philosophical reason placed in the service of theology. And fourth, a capacity to understand aptly the incarnation of the presence of God in human nature. Aquinas, in a way that is distinct from Bonaventure, succeeds in all these respects. He does so, however, while marshalling a much more extensive and detailed account of the historical sources for the doctrine of God through his scriptural, patristic, and conciliar commentaries, and through a more intensive study of philosophical and theological dimensions of the human person, for example, in his Aristotelian theory of human cognition, his hylomorphic understanding of the human person as one substance who is a body-soul composite, in his extensive study of the actions, virtues, and laws proper to the human person's flourishing, and in his detailed and rich accounts of the philosophy of nature and of metaphysics, as well as his sacramental theology, which is geared to our anthropological need of sanctification. In these regards, at least, the amplitude and intensive insight of this theological and philosophical vision seems to exceed even that of Bonaventure, who I take it is the most uh, plausible other uh, alternative candidate for a common doctor for Catholic theology through time. How then might we return to the question of the modern era? Can Aquinas really be a common doctor regarding the, the doctrine of God in our church today? To answer that question, let me make three points. And I assure you, dear friends, the plane is now finally approaching the runway, but it's still a little ways out. So you're just at the point where you're returning the seat to its upright position and putting the tray table up. 
First, if we compare him to our two very distinct and influential 20th century representatives mentioned before, it seems that Aquinas' approach to God offers something complementary to those aspects of his doctrine that Gary Gu Lagrange rightly underscores. Namely, Aquinas' second moment emphasis on the interior way to God casts in light of his primary moment emphasis on the metaphysical and transcendental elements of being is of decided modern importance. In an era in which human beings often reorient their innate tendencies towards truth uh, in explanation and towards contemplation and towards happiness through possession of the good away from the natural desire to know and be united with God, the interior habits of disorientation become important to understand and diagnose. Neither Rahner or Gary Gu Lagrange spent as much time on the existential priority of the exercise of love in the formation of habits of the mind as one might wish or need to in an age characterized by aggravated secularism and indifference to or alienation from religious explanations of human existence. I take it that these forms of disaggregation of the self emerge partly from distended loves within ourselves, which we need to understand better. Understanding and knowing one's loves allows us to understand where our sight dwells, as indeed the exercise of the heart leads the mind to contemplate what one considers important. So if we fix and mend the inner strings of the heart, the gaze of the human person will be elevated by the orientation of the will. And in this sense, I think Aquinas' anthropology bears within it resources to explain and analyze the vicious banality of the religiously disinterested and confused modern person. And yet the same anthropology allows one to articulate a statement for motivations of, ra of religious seeking, even in a secular context, and uh, in, a, in a kind of rational defense of religious aspiration, um, and I think this was arguably insufficiently developed by both the 20th century interlocutors. The same idea has applications in political theology, since the objective bearing of the human person towards God in Aquinas speaks rightly to Gary Goulagrange's notion of Catholic religious thinking as a philosophy of public reason. While Aquinas' notion of the volitional orientation of reason toward or away from God based on movements of the heart speaks to the de facto concern to work from, uh, from and within human freedoms, wounded though they may be, to invite and inform the inward loves of human persons and their societies politically towards real and perfect conversion over time. Law can be useful in this respect and even necessary in this regard, as can rational argument. But they can also be, uh, but they are also always law and rational argument, a second instance to the deeper ontology of personal conversion that is both individual and social socio collective. I think Aquinas' theology of love and of the imago dei moved by love is as important as his. Uh, uh, contributions to a theology of the rational animal in search for the absolute good. Second, Aquinas clearly is of the same ilk as Gary Gu Lagrange in arguing that the external real order of the world invites the mind to gaze upward toward the transcendent horizon, source, and end of all things. While this uh, rational aspiration may have appeared to be a deficit to many mid-20th century theologians like the Rahners of the world, at a time in which Kantian anthropology had a disproportionate influence in the modern university, 
we can say, I think with confidence today, that on the one hand, metaphysical modes of argumentation enjoy a new appreciation in contemporary international philosophical societies, which are less methodologically homogeneous than they were at any time in recent centuries, and certainly less homogeneously Kantian. And at the same time, on the other hand, the rise of atheism in modern philosophical academic culture is undoubted, so that the need to procure argumentation on the part of theologians is indisputable. Fideism is an outworn and hackneyed impulse. It really is important for theologians today to make assiduous use of reason in the public square, including philosophical argumentation about rational motivation for belief in God and for religious uh, orientations of life. The agnostic middle ground of Kant and the existential paradox of Rahner are now harder to maintain sociologically, and this fact invites us to undertake the more bracing option of simply returning to classical metaphysical approaches to God, as with Aquinas, to consider anew the external pathways in conversation with alternative philosophical viewpoints. Third, Aquinas's doctrine of the Incarnation and of the Trinity have the tremendous advantage in a pluralistic society that they are highly intelligible, cogent, and defensible interpretations of the Christian mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation, the two most central mysteries of the faith. And, the, and they pertain to those features of Christian identity which must be preserved uh, most, uh, first and foremost and then employed to explain all other facets of Christian life and self-understanding. Because Aquinas can understand something of the eternal mystery of the processional life in God by his analogical theolo theological forms of reflection that allow him to say in what respect the Trinitarian life is immutably eternal and vital, Aquinas also understands something of what God is that has been revealed to us in the economy of the missions of the Son and the Spirit. In other words, he can bo both speak about who God is eternally and how the eternal God is rendered manifest to us in the life, death, uh, uh, and resurrection of Jesus and in the sending of the Holy Spirit who is among us. He does so against the backdrop of a philosophy that aspires to knowledge of God, but as we've said, that cannot fully achieve what it desires, so that the higher light of knowledge of the eternal trinity that has now dawned in the incarnation and resurrection appears as a yet greater achievement and gain for reason given from supernatural revelation than that which is derived from natural reason, but that's also per, per, truly and genuinely perfective of natural reason in its own line of inquiry and tangential, tendential desire as it seeks to know the first cause. Likewise, the doctrines of the Trinity and of Jesus Christ as Aquinas understands them allow one to reread from the interior all of the human experience, including the anthropological vision of man noted above that is so incisive and specific to Aquinas' theological and philosophical vision. In other words, he gives us a Trinitarian way to understand what is deepest, best, and most real in the human person. So I hope now to conclude briefly in one paragraph with um, incautious prophecy. It is sometimes said that at the start of the third millennium, we live not in an epoch characterized by controversy concerning the nature of God, the Holy Trinity revealed in Christ, as was the case in the fourth to the seventh centuries, in the time of the great Trinitarian Christological councils, nor do we live in an age characterized by controversy concerning the church and the sacraments as in the 16th century. 
but rather we live in an age characterized by a new and as yet developing controversy concerning the nature of the human person as an embodied spiritual animal characterized by dipolar male-female complementariness and reprodu reproductive capacity to transmit human life responsibly as a being made in the image of God. This anthropological vision seems questionable and potentially subject to a new plasticity in a technological age marked by new forms of philosophical skepticism, scientism, and the influence of a common moral calculus in political life that aims above all at the permissive expansion of liberties in the name of public acceptance seen as collective inclusion, subjective therapy, and the occasion for social consensus building. This third epic, uh, epoch of uh, controversy is characterized then by anthropological crisis or controversy. What precisely is it to be human? Can we say? And how is it to be determined in the public life of culture? In such an epoch, how do we first treat questions of human nature and personal identity philosophically, and then second, reread them from within the light of the great Christological and Trinitarian principles of Christianity. For this purpose, as well as for those enumerated above, Aquinas' teaching should prove most useful. Thus, even in the beginnings of the third millennium, and perhaps especially at this juncture in culture and history, his thought seems apt to serve a role in the church as that of common doctor for the doctrine of God. So, long live Thomism. Amen. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.